Welcome back to Moms in Baseball. This is episode 22, and I am Stephanie. And I'm Diana. Today, we're going to be talking about things that you never knew about baseball. Basically, we've had a couple really serious topics that we've covered our last few episodes, and we have some more serious topics coming up. So today, we just wanted to have fun, and hopefully, even seasoned veterans in the game will learn something in today's episode. We're going to talk about baseball rules you probably didn't know, things from baseball history that you may not know, and also stories about baseball players that you may not have ever heard. First up, let's go into the rules that you probably didn't know. The first one is, while most people have probably heard of the ground rule double, which is a pretty common occurrence in baseball, you know, when the ball bounces in the outfield and then goes over the fence or out of the play, the batter gets to take two bases. A lot of people, however, don't know that there's also a ground rule triple. If a fielder intentionally touches a fair batted ball with their baseball hat, mask, or any other part of their uniform that is, quote, detached from the proper place on his person, end quote, (laughs) all runners, including the batter, advance three bases. And the interesting thing is that the ball also remains in play, so the runner may attempt to advance home at his or her own peril. (laughs) If the same thing happens on a thrown ball, then each runner advances two bases. And basically, this is the same reason why you can't throw your glove up to stop a ball. I know I've heard people ask that before. Like, if you're an outfielder and you know it's going over the fence, why not, like, chuck your glove at it and try to stop it? Well, this is why. And the funny thing is, even people in the MLB don't know this rule. Uh, It happened as recently as 2015 by Elvis Andrews. His team ended up going on a rally to win the game, but he had done this at shortstop. He threw his glove at a ball to stop it, and his manager... Jeff Bannister was not amused. He said that he probably didn't understand the three-base rule, and it's the second time he'd seen it happen. In both instances, he didn't believe the players knew about that rule, but he did not want other teams to think that that was how they played. Nice. (laughs) All right. The next one is dead ball. So if a pitched ball lodges in the umpire's or catcher's mask or paraphernalia and remains out of play on the third strike or fourth ball, then the batter is entitled to first base and all the runners advance one base. So if the count on the batter is fewer than three balls, runners advance one base. It's good to know. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not every day the ball gets lodged in a mask, (laughs) but it's good to understand this rule if it does happen, right? right? (laughs) I think they usually just call timeout and then everything's like, wait, what happened? I know. I was trying to imagine if I've ever seen this happen, but I would be shocked at our level if the umpires did the right thing with this. True. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that it happened on a third strike in particular, because in a way it's almost like they caught it, but I guess they didn't catch it with their glove. Not with, yeah, (laughs) not with the right thing. Yeah. (laughs) So it'd be kind of a lucky thing, I suppose, if you strike out and it gets lodged in the catcher's mask. Yeah, because then you're like, see ya. Yep. And you don't even have to run it out. (laughs) Nice. All right. Our third fun rule for today is about fielder distraction. And this rule says, no fielder shall take a position in the batter's line of vision and with deliberate unsportsmanlike intent, act in a manner to distract the batter. And the penalty for this is that the offender shall be removed from the game and shall leave the playing field. And if a balk was made, it should be nullified. Mm. So the history of this rule is kind of interesting, I thought. There was an at-bat against the New York Giants on August 9th, 1950. 
Boston Braves third baseman Bob Elliott asked the second base umpire to shift his position slightly because he was in Elliott's line of vision and it was making it difficult for him to pick up the baseball. So New York second baseman Eddie Stanky saw an opportunity. And I will say Eddie Stanky, his nickname was The Brat. (laughs) And you're going to see why. He's like the little brother. You're like, no, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Eddie Stanky saw an opportunity here. So before the next pitch, he walked over to right where the umpire had been standing and started doing jumping jacks. Ultimately, Elliot and his teammates were pretty unfazed and the game passed without any incident. However, two days later, against the Phillies, Stanky was back at it again, and this time he decided to target Philadelphia catcher Andy Semenik. And with him, Stanky got the reaction he was looking for. Semenik was furious. He demanded that the home plate umpire take action. The problem was none of the umpires could find a rule preventing it. Apparently, there had never been reason before to outlaw jumping jacks in the batter's sight, so the umpires allowed Stanky to continue for the rest of the game. He continued his shenanigans the next day, and finally the umpires had enough and they ejected him. (laughs) Later in that same game, Andy Semenik, who was clearly still furious at Stanky, took out Stanky's replacement, Bill Rigney, when he was sliding into second base. This incited a benches clearing brawl. (laughs) It required NYPD involvement. And so after this game, the National League president, Ford Frick, decided to make a ruling and he instructed umpires to eject fielders for antics on the field designed or intended to annoy or disturb the opposing batsmen. So the language has changed slightly and expanded a bit, but the rule has been on the books ever since. Very nice. All right. The fourth rule that we're going to talk about today is basically a rule that was created because of situations like what happened with Eddie Stanky. So each umpire has the authority to rule on any point not specifically covered in the rules. This is MLB rule 8.01C. So basically this rule is the product of decades and decades of players and coaches coming up with inventive ways to duck the rules. (laughs) Um, I thought this was funny. So for example, players have been known to use frozen peeled potatoes as baseball decoys. <laughs> and a catcher in the Class D Evangeline League came up with a unique twist on the potato trick in 1934 when he pulled a potato out of his back pocket after receiving a pitch and threw it into the outfield. So two runners <laughs> tried to score thinking it was a wild throw and were then tagged out at home plate when they discovered the catcher still had the ball. So the umpire was able to invoke his powers under the rule 801C, and he ruled the runner safe. He did not accept the catcher's explanation that he had simply found the potato on the ground and was trying to safely (laughs) remove it from the field of play. Yeah, just I just found this here. I don't know what it's doing here, but I just found it. (laughs) That's nice. I like that. All right, I'm going to talk about a couple of the honorable mentions. So one of the honorable mentions is a team's manager or coach can call a break in the game and go talk to their pitcher. The meeting is considered over once the coach leaves the 18-foot radius surrounding the pitcher's plate. If he heads back to the mound, say he forgot to discuss something, that's in violation of the rules and the coach has to replace the pitcher. I'd love to see that. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well... Most people know that the coach can't visit twice in one inning without replacing the pitcher, right? And so I think this is, I guess, just maybe people don't necessarily understand what exactly constitutes two visits. So be real careful, I guess. Yeah, how many steps, like, 
Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. How many steps Don't you make it? and go back. Uh-huh, absolutely. Yeah. The next one is, while it seems like a baseball game can stretch on forever, especially as a pitcher debates his next pitch, there's actually a time limit. It's almost never enforced, but a pitcher technically has 12 seconds to deliver a pitch if the bases are empty. Yeah, and I wish this rule were enforced more because a lot of people already think baseball can be really boring to watch, you know, on TV or whatever and understand that's a tactic. But yeah, speed it up, throw the ball, (laughs) just throw it. Yeah. So let's start talking about some baseball history facts that you probably didn't know. Yes, I'm sure I was not aware of any of these, actually, when I was reading them over. (laughs) In the mid-1800s, if you were an unfortunate base runner in the game of baseball, you could be put out between bases by having the ball thrown directly at you. This particular (laughs) manner of getting an out is known as patching, plugging, or soaking, was considered central in the manly (laughs) spirit of the game, and players were resistant to having the rule change. But yeah, I, we do. I mean, I remember doing this, like when you were a kid, (laughs) you're going to move and I'm just going to throw the ball at you. And guess what? If I tag you, you're out, dude. Right. Yeah. I think this is a pretty standard rule in like backyard baseball because you only have so many kids and my kids call it Peggy. Yes. I don't know if that's an official term, but yeah, they, it's all cleared that they're playing Peggy. Yep. And yeah. So apparently that was the way to do it. And I think it's hilarious that the players didn't want that to go away. They liked that rule. I can see that. Made them tough and manly. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, this one just makes me giggle. So (laughs) while umpires today maybe are given a lot of grief, in the early days of baseball, it was quite different. Umpires were chosen from the crowd before the first pitch, and they were usually prominent members of the community. They sat somewhere in the rough vicinity of the game, often under an umbrella. (laughs) From a 1916 newspaper report, the Marion Star, it says the old umpires were accorded the utmost courtesy by the players. They were given easy chairs, placed near the home plate, provided with fans on hot days, and their absolute comfort was uppermost in the minds of the players. (laughs) The umpire always received the choicest bits of food and the largest glass of beer. They were fancy. They were very, very fancy. Maybe that's why we have such a shortage of umpires today. I don't know. Maybe we need to look back at this. Hey, we do sometimes you know, give them a water, you know, we give a nice chat, maybe give them a fan or something, you know. (laughs) I know in rec league, we do still choose our umpires from the crowd before the first pitch. That's the same. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. That is nice. That's good to know. Yeah. (laughs) All right. In the earlier days of baseball, officials tried to even out the balance between pitchers and hitters and various new rules were tested and discarded. For example, In 1879, it took nine balls for the umpire to issue a walk. No way. The concept of the strike zone was quite wobbly as well. Oh, boy. Early batters were allowed to request that the pitch be thrown high or low, and the pitcher was required by rules to deliver the pitch as requested. Hmm. (laughs) This sounds just like backyard baseball. I don't know. (laughs) It actually kind of does. Yeah. Yeah. My kids will play like, no curveballs allowed. That's right. That's right. You throw that one high. I want that one high. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. But it's usually siblings or family members that are playing with each other. So you must honor the request. Right. Okay. The next one is pitchers were required to throw underhand until 1883. 
baseball's first codified set of rules known as the Knickerbocker Rules drafted in 1845 for New York's Knickerbocker Baseball Club state, the ball must be pitched, not thrown, for the bat. And pitched in this sense meant a stiff, underhanded motion, almost like bowling. So the person credited for raising the delivery is Tommy Bond because he raised his delivery above the waist in the mid-1870s. And from there, it was only a matter of time before overhand pitching was born. And all the rest of the arm problems. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. Maybe we should have stuck with underhand, right? I know, right. right. (laughs) All right. The next one is in the 1880s, a sequence of bizarre rules were introduced to allow the use of bats that were square or even flat on the business end which allowed batters to place the ball in play. The bats never really worked out, though, because they tended to splinter and pieces got into contact with the baseball. That kind of sounds like cricket, though, doesn't it? It does, but, you know, when I was reading through the history of baseball, they were talking about how a lot of these rules were inspired by cricket because that's kind of how baseball came to be, the underhand pitching. Right. I, I don't know anything about cricket, but it was mentioned that that's kind of where we got the underhand pitching from as well. Huh. So, yeah, I guess we were just, you know, early on trying to figure things out, how this game of baseball was going to work. True, true. Well, I'm I'm glad they changed it. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, a giant paddle that you're, like, holding out and covering, like, the entire strike zone. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make contact. <laughs> I will hit it. One way or another. I will hit it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I thought this was interesting. Where the shortstop traditionally plays today is a relatively modern phenomenon. So they didn't always play between second and third base. In the early days of baseball, uh, baseball diamonds weren't generally fenced in. So anything that was hit over the outfielder's head just kept going and going and going. And we know that from Little League and Rat because we've all played on those fields, right? Oh, yeah. So the shortstop's job was to act as kind of like a roving fourth outfielder whose responsibility was to relay balls from the outfield back to the infield. Huh? Makes sense. There we go. All right. The next one is fly balls could be caught off a bounce until 1864. The foul balls until 1883. It seems weird to think about that, but the logic was fairly straightforward. It was a holdover from Jack's, which was a favorite childhood game. And in the days before gloves, it also allowed players to avoid catching a very hard ball with their bare hands. Again, this is our backyard baseball, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can see that, but um, yeah, no. (laughs) The game would go on forever, right? Right. Yeah. They felt like this was kind of like a sissy rule because... And so the players wanted this one to go because they thought that it kind of diminished the game of baseball a bit. Mm. So when they finally voted it out in 1864, they still allowed foul balls to be an out if you caught them on one hop for another 20 years. Huh. Very interesting. So, yeah. Here we go. The league banned the use of spitballs in 1920. However, the league designated 17 pitchers who were kind of grandfathered in and allowed to continue using spitballs until they retired. (laughs) All right, Stephanie, how about our last fun fact from baseball history? Okay. So in the earliest days before the sport was even called baseball, the game was literally played backwards. So bases were commonly run clockwise in these games with the batter running toward what is now third base after the ball was put into play. In fact, some of the variations, the batter could actually choose to run clockwise or counterclockwise and subsequent hitters in the inning would have to follow (laughs) suit. So it was just like a hot mess. That's nice. (laughs) 
I will choose what I want and you must all follow me. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine being a fielder and not knowing. Right. What way do I go? What way? And not knowing which way your leadoff hitter is even running. <laughs> right. Would you Would you then get stuck in like a game of pickle because you're like, hey, I'm going. Oh, no, no. I want to go back. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But I can see why that rule didn't stick around too long. Yes, absolutely. I shouldn't say rule. That lack of rule. Yeah. I, I suppose. All right. So. Before we wrap up, we have three stories about baseball players that you may not have known. Our next story is a shout out to our multi-sport athletes. All right. So Bob Gibson was quite an accomplished basketball player. So growing up in Omaha, he was a local hoops legend and he was in line for a scholarship at Indiana when, according to Gibson, he was told the team had already satisfied its quota of black players. <sighs> so instead, he remained in his hometown and became the first black player in the history of Creighton University where he played basketball from 1954 to 57, scoring 1,272 points in 63 games. Gibson spent late 1957 in the Harlem Globetrotters even after signing with the Cardinals to play baseball. His roomie in those days was Meadowlark Lemon, one of the most legendary globetrotters ever. Here's what he said about Gibson. I thought Bob was a better basketball player than a baseball player. I think Bob could have played with any NBA team. He was that good. The story goes that Cardinals exec Bing Devine offered Gibson an additional $4,000 to give up hoops for good and that that money provided the necessary persuasion. So two other baseball Hall of Fame members, Lou Brock and Fergie Jenkins, also played for the Globetrotters at one time. Well, that is pretty dang amazing. That's pretty interesting. And I, what I didn't see is, did he play baseball? Like, how could he be that good? And he didn't even play in college. He played basketball. Maybe he played both. Well, you know, let's just bring up some of those multi-sport people. I mean, we have definitely Bo Jackson. That was He was amazing because he was MLB and NFL. And then we also have uh, Michael Jordan, who loved baseball, but actually went on to do basketball and then later went back to baseball, which is a crazy accomplishment that we all do not realize either. So, I mean, yeah, shout out to all those. I'm, I'm sure I'm missing a ton more as well. I mean, even we just oh, talked about yeah. who is the um, Patrick Mahomes too. Let's go there. I mean, he had a, a great baseball career and then he went on to play football as well. So yeah, shout out to our multi-sport players. Awesome. I quickly Googled it. He did play both basketball and baseball at Creighton University. Oh, good. So good for him then. Good for him. Apparently he just wasn't real sure which one he wanted to stick with until that extra $4,000 right. made that, up his that mind $4,000. Yeah. That was a smart move on his part. <laughs> That paid off. Yep. <laughs> okay. Our second story today is about Gaylord Perry, who's a bit of a baseball legend. Over a 22-year career spent mostly with the Giants, he established himself as one of the best right-handed pitchers of all time. He's a Hall of Famer and a 300-game winner with a 3.11 lifetime ERA, 3,534 strikeouts, and two Cy Young Awards to his name. So, again, obviously he was a great pitcher, but he was a really, really bad hitter. <laughs> he played most of his career before we had the DH, so he actually got a fair amount of at-bats, 1,220 plate appearances in all, with a career batting average of 131. Mm. So one day during the 1964 season, he was actually smacking a lot of home runs in BP. And his manager, Elvin Dark, and San Francisco Examiner reporter Harry Jupiter were watching. 
Jupiter told Dark that Perry actually looked pretty good with a bat in his hands and said that the pitcher might even hit a home run one of these days. Dark's response set in motion one of the weirdest coincidences in baseball history. He said, Mark my words, a man will land on the moon before Gaylord Perry hits a home run. (laughs) So now fast forward five years. You can probably see where this is going to July 20th, 1969. Perry, now 30 and clearly established as one of the best arms in the game, was scheduled to start against the rival Dodgers. But there was something else happening that afternoon. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were about to become the first men to set foot on the moon. At 1.17 p.m. Pacific time, Apollo 11 landed. Some 238,000 miles away at Candlestick Park, Perry stepped up to the plate in the top of the third inning, and wouldn't you know it, he hit the first home run of his major league career. He told MLB.com back in 2009, he said, well, about the top of the third, over the loudspeaker, they were telling everybody to stand and give a moment of silent thanks for the astronauts who landed on the moon. And I'd say 30 minutes later, Claude Austin grooved me a fastball and I hit it out of the park. And the rest is history, folks. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. That is nice. All right, next. This is just another fun story. I mean, (laughs) not fun for him. (laughs) It's not fun for him, but it was fun to read about. I hope I'm saying this right. Clarence Blethen injured himself with his own false teeth. So in 1923, Clarence Blethen was a rookie pitcher for the Red Sox. He also happened to wear false teeth. When he was pitching, he thought he'd look meaner if he took his teeth out, which I could totally see, I guess. So he put them in his back pocket. One day he's running the bases. Clarence forgot about the false teeth in his pocket, and as he went to steal second, the teeth clamped down, and the falsies took a sizable chunk out of one of his buttocks, and the wound bled profusely, thus making Clarence Blethen the only man to be injured by biting himself in the butt. First, what are those dentures made of? Like, seriously? (laughs) I know. I was trying to picture the mechanism that would, like, cause them to clamp down and bite you, but I don't know. I don't know how those work. Yeah, never again. He'll never do that again, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and here's our last fact. Yes, our final one. So it's known that Mike Trout is a professed weather nerd. So aside from <laughs> baseball, meteorology is something that he holds interest in. Supposedly, he has direct message people at the Weather Channel about storm models. <laughs> During Winter Storm Jonas in 2014, Trout got to live his dream by giving a weather report on air. He shared a video on Twitter of himself driving through the snowstorm back home in New Jersey. That tweet set the stage for his appearance on the Weather Channel. He called the station to give Jim Cantor a report on the weather conditions in Millville, New Jersey. Apparently, Cantor ranked the experience among the best of his career, but it sounds like it was a pretty exciting ordeal for Mike Trout, too. Okay. (laughs) I just think that's great. You know, you you think of somebody like Mike Trout and he must just eat, sleep and breathe baseball, but there's more to him. He loves weather. Yeah. He likes the weather. Good for him. Yeah. I hope that you enjoyed these random facts and learned something today. I know Stephanie and I absolutely did. Yes. And I'm going to apologize right here if we, well, I'm not going to say if. I'm going to apologize that we likely pronounced several of these names incorrectly. Yes. So (laughs) apologies for that. But if you'd like to learn more, absolutely check out the articles that we are posting in our show notes to show where we found all this information. 
All right. If you have any fun stories or facts you want to share, please shout us out a message on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're at Moms in Baseball. If you're enjoying our podcast, also please leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast player. On deck for next week, actually for the next two weeks, we have an arm care two-part series. In the first part, we'll be answering controversial questions about arm care from a secret Major League (laughs) Baseball-level pitching coach. Shh. (laughs) And then in the second part, we will be interviewing a physical therapist who specializes in arm care for baseball players. Yeah, you definitely don't want to miss that one. So until then, have fun at the fields. We'll see you next week. Is that his name? Sure. <laughs> yep. Okay. This story goes that Cardinals exec Big Div- Bing Divine offered Gibson an additional. <laughs> I know. I totally <laughs> I was on a roll at first, and then I'm like, now. Nah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, try it one more time. I'll be good. It's the names. <laughs> the names are killing me. Okay, okay. All right. <laughs>